Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Daryl Perkins, the author of The End is at Hand, an Illustrated History of the Apocalypse. Daryl, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Could you start by talking a little bit about how this book came about and how you decided to create an illustrated history of the apocalypse? Yeah, sure. Um, so apocalypse as a topic, I guess it's uh, I guess it's kind of been coming up a little bit lately. Little uh, pandemic action, getting everyone uh, thinking about the end of the world, and it got me thinking about the end of the world. Um, everyone's learning to bake sourdough, and I'm you know like everyone reading Albert Camus, uh, the plague, and enjoying that, and thinking, God, there's a lot, there's a lot of meat here on the end of the world stuff, and uh, so then I'm. You know, everyone's talking about it. I'm thinking about it. I start, uh, I start making some art pieces about it. I'm drawing, I'm painting, I'm illustrating, and I'm mostly a printmaker. So I do a lot of these black and white uh, printmaking illustrations, lino cut prints, uh, and I'm doing my research. And I'm really interested in the story. So originally, it was just going to be like a gallery exhibition, just with these little explanations of what these are illustrating. And just the more I kept I, there's so many great stories out there about the end of the world and I'm looking into them. And I'm like, you know, this, and I start sharing stories with my friends and they just kind of keep expanding. And all of a sudden I'm equally interested in the stories as the illustrations and the art I'm making for it. So I, it, so it kind of just organically became more of a book than just an exhibition. Um, and the way I set it up was, um, kind of equal parts. So there's uh, a short story uh, that takes up about a page with uh, about some incident of the end of the world or fear of the end of the world or how it could happen or how it has already happened paired with this single page illustration. There's kind of this like equal weight to them. Um, and I think it fits a book format way more than what originally it was with, uh, uh, with a, a gallery show. Yes. And just because we are on, you know, a podcast and all audio. So people realize like these are like there's these beautiful prints in each of them. So if you have the book, you can kind of look at the print as you're reading what is going on at the end of the what could possibly happen to end our world. Right. <laughs> what could it be? What, yeah. So many, so many choices. So could you talk a little bit about um how you, I mean, because like you said, there are so many choices. You have how many different uh, endings here? How many apocalyptic endings do you have here? Um, I think there's something like 40 different illustrations. So there's got to be about that many stories in there. Um, and they do range. So uh, some are uh, myths and fables and uh, that communities used to kind of build around and sometimes religions are built around them. Um, some are uh, just kind of science gone awry where we were, you know, we're, as so much of it is relatable too. So we're figuring out that, you know, we're figuring out science as we go along. And sometimes uh, we mistake science for myth and fables and uh, planets aligning don't actually mean that there's going to be a world ending flood and all of these different incidents that we're, we're just kind of reliving all the time. Um, so of course there's the classics like uh, volcanoes have ended the world before. We have these 20 different super volcanoes located around the world. We're actually overdue 
for uh, a massive uh, volcanic eruption. But we forget about that because we're surrounded by them all the time. We get these little eruptions. It's no big deal. Uh, but there are uh, world-ending volcanic eruptions. It's happened. It killed off the dinosaurs a few times. There is always the constant threat of uh, an asteroid or meteorite uh, coming in and wreaking havoc. Um, and, uh, and now we have these, these modern, so we get, so it's kind of chronological. So we go all the way back and we have these different, uh, exterminations. So even biodiversity, which relates to these different periods of massive extermination. Um, so we have, uh, five different max extinctions. We might be in the sixth right now. Um, some of those were all sorts of different reasons, um, uh, uh, including volcanoes and asteroids um, and moving into uh, so it moves forward into these different myths and fables um, things that we thought would happen things that didn't happen things that were way off um, the different doomsday cults and um, everything that goes on with that with there's just uh, so many and it could have been its own book in itself um, and then Moving forward into uh, some of the more modern fears like overpopulation, um, which was one of the last things I added. And probably some of the research on that is actually some of the things that kind of scare me the most. Um, and then, of course, uh, everything that we talk about and we see in the news every day, like global warming and artificial intelligence. Uh, and then the fun stuff like aliens and zombies and um, all the other things that we, we get from pop culture. Um, so, I mean, I hope even though it's kind of a dark topic, I try to keep it light. And um, I think I think it has to be. I think you kind of have to keep it light and fun. Oh, yes. I I will agree with that. I think like you move from like some of these things that seem doom and gloom, but there's a bit of like humor in there. There's a bit of satire throughout to make it. Yes. It, light and fun when it needs to be. Right. Yeah. Anytime I felt myself getting really bogged down in the heaviness, like some of these religious conflicts and all of these other ways that we have exterminated each other. And, and I'm like, OK, all right. The next one. Luckily, we're moving along in time, and now we have some really fun Norse mythology where, you know, we have serpents coming from the deep depths of the sea. And, uh, yeah, I really, you know, i gotta got to keep it, keep it light in areas. So, you know, one of the things, and then maybe we can come back and talk about some particular ones, but one of the things I really loved about this was that we often... Um, see the end product of the art and people look at art but don't think about the research that often goes into creating art and so you have this book where you have um, these myths and then you also include some of that research you've done some of the things you've looked at right um, and so we can kind of see that process so could you um, talk a little bit about how like you you talk you know you created these pieces you wrote about these pieces how that kind of how the research how that all kind of came together like did you create are you like i'm gonna look at this myth for sure i want to look at this part of the apocalypse like how did you pick and choose kind of what you looked at and then get to that research on it um sure yeah it was quite a quite a path with that um because at at first i just found a couple of fun stories that kind of got my interest peaked and then I was like, oh, I could do something fun with that. Um, and then, of course, once I realized this was rapidly expanding and there were endless 
options to really go in. And of course, even now that it's done, I keep thinking, oh, I'd like to go back and add that. You know, oh, Easter Island is really kind of an interesting uh, end of world scenario. And, um, you know, these different uh, things, it, it just kept expanding. But um, so, I mean, a lot of it would be this brainstorm where I'd be listing and I'd just be like, okay, well, there's obviously the classics and you kind of list those and then you see what you can find and try and find a little nugget of information that's kind of unique and different and try and put a different spin on it than just kind of the the dry, okay, we have volcanoes and they're going to come. And, um, uh, but so finding some some sort of different spin with it um, and just just finding different, uh, different pieces, different articles, uh, different ways that people think about it. And then, of course, also how I think about it. You know, um, we can't help but put a little bit of ourselves in it. Um, like you said, there's some satire. I find that in my education, I kind of have to keep it short and light um, so that it, uh, because otherwise I, 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 I lose my students. Right. So as a college professor, you kind of have to keep them on their toes and, and keep it light. And, and you can't just bog, bog it all down with too much information. So um, being able to keep it brief, keep it concise, getting to the point. But then, of course, you know, we, we put ourselves in there, our personalities in there. So if satire and keeping light is part of it, um, that's bound to happen. Um, and, uh, um, and and hopefully it's not. Um, uh, hopefully it's not, it's not, it doesn't get too dark or anything. So some of these, like, as I was reading this, some of these, um, stories I knew, some of them I did not, um, as you were doing this, were there some, were there certain ones you came across where you were like, you had no clue about it or you were super surprised oh, yes. about that's, <laughs> that's what you were asking about. Yes. That's where I was no, going. Yeah, I lost no, my train of thought. Next. <laughs> No, no, that's great. Uh, so, yes, I had the obvious. I had the brain. So I totally lost my train of thought before. Um, yes, I um, I had the obvious ones and I was brainstorming. And then you kind of get down this uh, this this rabbit hole of just, oh, here's another interesting doomsday cult or here's one that. So you start to expand and you start thinking, OK, well. I've got a couple of things from, you know, kind of American based research. But, you know, when you're doing your research, of course, you got your Google search set on, uh, you know, English. So you how do you find other cultures and other languages and how do you find these different uh, hidden myths and how other cultures and other histories have looked at the end of the world? It's not always just there in English. So you kind of have to do some digging. So a few things where I was really looking and kind of like deep diving was really trying to find multi, you know, representing multicultural uh, backgrounds and um, everything from Hindu myths, a really interesting Japanese one where there's this uh, catfish lying underneath the ocean. And there's all of this, uh, there's so many uh, uh, apocalyptic moments in, in Japan because they're right on a fault line. So they've, they kind of live in terror. And the only way to explain it, they're coming up with this explanation. And of course, it's just that there's a giant catfish under the earth and we all need to kind of keep it balanced, keep it balanced folks, you know? Um, and so they, uh, so you, I was just looking for more representation in it and finding different um, cultural histories. I found some in the UK um, and I, I just kept thinking there's gotta be, you know, there's gotta be more and just trying to, trying to dig deeper and kind of represent all these different types of end of world scenarios and myths that get shared. And you also kind of talked about how some of these, so I'm thinking of like the Noah's Ark myth, for example, you kind of talk about how um, 
especially in the United States or in the Christian religion, there's sort of one narrative, but there is also a history of some of these that are retold or retellings in other cultures and other religions and other spaces. So you kind of give us a little bit of insight into how these, um, these apocalyptic stories are, even if we know them, one version of them, there are multiple versions of them sometimes. Yeah, that was an interesting one because everyone does know that story. So am I going to waste a page telling the whole story start to end? Or am I going to give a quick synopsis and say, you know this story, there's the reason you know this story. Because it's in your religion, it's in your neighbor's religion, it's in everyone's religion has some variation of this. And so why would that have been around so long? Well, before these religions were even formed, we actually have, uh, it started out as a folktale. So where does this folktale come from? Why would it predate all these religions that have some version of Noah's Ark? Um, And it's because there were these massive floods that would wipe out entire cities um, uh, around the Middle East. And, um, and to these people, that's a global flood. That, as far as they are concerned, that is the entire world that is gone, right? So they're displaced, they're traveling the world. They, and think about the Middle East, it's centrally located. So, they're, so people move to Europe, they move to Africa, they, they move to Asia. Everywhere they go, they're saying the world ended, the entire world was flooded. Of course, there's not enough water on Earth to actually flood the entire world. So um, it, it couldn't happen, but yet... As far as this story that gets spread across the world, it's just this classic folktale that is merged into it's merged into every single culture, um, and it gets shared, and then it gets moved around and kind of changed a bit. Um, and uh, and of course, it has all of the the classics that you would enjoy from uh, from a, a great story that's that's shared. You know, it's got all these adorable animals. It has a, a heroic, hardworking person that hard work pays out in the end. All you got to do is build it and you got to make it happen and you can save your family. Just put in a little elbow grease and you can save your family in the world uh, and repopulate the world. And um, and it's it's got turbulence. It's got action. It's, uh, it's this classic story. So instead of me telling the story, it's more about why that story has become the end all be all for apocalyptic tales. So did you have any ones that you like favorites or ones that you really loved when you were doing when you were creating these either the stories or also or the images that you created the pieces that you created? Um, yeah, some of these little niche stories where you're just like, did this really happen? You know, there was some, some stuff going on in Germany where people are just these massive, you know, people are just assuming there's massive floods and there are things going on in the UK where, um, you realize it's, it's telling about the people. Uh, and I, I think as I'm seeing it all kind of come together as this story of the history of the world and the history of people and their fears and insecurities all kind of coming together, there's that that middle era where um, we just we're trying to figure it out. And there's so many uh, people that are making scams off of it. Um, and uh, that's one of the ongoing themes in the book. It's just how many people out of there, they figure this is the perfect scam and people are going to be afraid and I can make something off of it. Or some people that genuinely felt like this is, hey, this is the end of the world. This is happening. I need to share this. Who wouldn't share it? If you really believe this and you're having visions and you're certain that this is what's going on and you're writing poems and you become a celebrity and people are fawning over you and you've got a lockbox full of secrets of how to save the world. And so some of those stories are my favorite. 
Um, and um, uh, and the illustrations, the fun ones are really when there's something very unique to the story where I get to kind of uh, have a little fun uh, with it and put these little pieces into it, like the uh, uh, Joanna Southcott, who had this the safety box of the, the UK. She was the woman of the apocalypse, and she uh, fancied herself the, the one that could save everything. She became quite a celebrity there and was writing all these poems. Um, and uh, so kind of turning, so I, I kind of reimagined her instead of, depicting her as this uh this woman who you know she was she was thought she was pregnant and was going to bear uh the the messiah and the world was going to start over again upon her birth and um upon her giving birth and was going to restart it so instead of depicting her just as this 1600s writer i got to have some fun and kind of turn her into what i think the woman of the apocalypse as we picture her today as this superhero that is flying around and um so i got to do some more illustrative prints than just kind of a portrait of the woman right and you know one of the things i thought was super fascinating was all (laughs) the amount uh or the number maybe of people who were kind of like I, this is going to happen. The flood's happening. This is happening. That is happening. Right. And then, and then it's like, even though it doesn't happen at that time, I think there was one of the, the sort of cult leaders in, in Africa who was kind of doubled down on it. Right. It's like, okay, it didn't happen then, but um, it's still going to keep happening. Right. Yeah. It's amazing there. So, I mean, uh, so many of them, they're saying this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Believe me. And they get a lot of followers. Sometimes it goes to the newspapers. Sometimes it becomes a massive campaign. Um, And, you know, a lot of times they they end up forming a cult like uh, like the guy uh, Enoch uh, Migajima, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, in in South Africa. Um, You know, he he, just like Jim Jones and just like uh, uh, so many of our these cult leaders, um, they're saying, oh, the the world's coming to an end and they do double down on it. They invest everything in it. And because that's how they get their followers to invest everything and sell all their goods and donate it to the commune and. and these people do commit themselves. And then when it doesn't happen, uh, you know, sometimes they're just stranded in the wilderness. And sometimes they kind of go off the rails like Jim Jones and they end up starting a commune somewhere else. And um, uh, and then there's so the, the flood earlier in the book and in early Germany, um, this that was kind of an interesting story because there um, this was a time, you know, when we think about so much of this, even with the pandemic we're living through, right? We're thinking, well, you know, science isn't perfect. We're figuring it out as we go along. And to see the progress we've made and you're thinking, this guy is the smartest of his generation and he was the head professor of mathematics and astronomy at this really prestigious university in Germany. And he has all the credibility, but they didn't know that astrology and astronomy were different things so he's saying no, no no i'm looking at i'm looking at the planets and and you know this is definitely this is definitely a worldwide flood it's got to be you know it's a pisces year it's happening uh and so everyone's just like that's it it's happening you know um and it, it made it you know it spread across europe and people in uh people in london were literally heading for the hills and high grounds and they were leaving you know the uh water level and trying to to run uh for high ground because this flood was coming and on that day it had been a really dry year 
So they're, you know, they're like, okay, this is today. And then, crazily enough, it starts to rain. So everyone's like, oh, this is it. It's really happening. It's really happening. So they all start, they're running for the river to try and, to try and, uh, to, to get on any boat they can get to try and wage the, the floods. And, uh, and it, havoc, it gets, uh, chaos ensues and um, a bunch of people get, killed and even the people that you know planned for this and got these giant boats they end up getting their their boats overtaken by people scrambling and they get killed and uh stoned in the streets and um and then of course the rain stops and there was no flood at all and this guy who was the leading scientist you know ends up living his days in shame and ruins his ruins his name and and also set changes the path for science because that discredited astrology forever. And now to this day, it's kind of considered uh, this, this joke or just kind of a game. Um, and, you know, turns out people were, uh, had a lasting impression when all these people died thinking a flood would happen and it didn't happen. Which is super fascinating. I, I also, I have to say, when, another thing I kind of loved is that reading your book and looking at it, it reminded me um, of some of these apocalyptic stories I kind of forgot about, right? Like Heaven's Gate and, and like some of the elements of Heaven's Gate, right? Like I was like, oh, that's right. That was a big thing. Yeah, there was an SNL skit. Yeah, you go back and watch it. I'm like looking at it. I was like, oh, I kind of remember, you know, it's late 90s. There were all these, I mean, the millennium, just everybody everybody that had all these different things going on you know there's a section of course y2k which is kind of a little more quaint in hindsight but then also these uh these cult leaders including uh heaven's gate from the 90s which is a really interesting story i mean uh millennialism and um uh and also a, a taiwanese group that moved to to texas and we're certain that technology was coming and uh, god was going to appear on broadcast television because everyone was obsessed with television in the late 90s. Now that same concept could get turned into social media or the internet or something else we're afraid of. But at the time, it was broadcast television. It was going to be channel 13, I believe. You know, that's the one. That's the one. Or 18. And God was going to appear. And then it was the same thing that happened everywhere else. You know, they just turned out, didn't happen. And then they all just disbanded. So at least nobody died in that one, but they all just kind of disappear. And the Heaven's Gate one, that was, uh, that was a pretty, pretty serious one. That one got a lot of attention because it was around for years and it had a huge following. Um, and that one was more about this combination of um, aliens coming to Earth, but also aliens taking you to heaven. Um, so there were originally two leaders, but then tragically one died, but they were... They weren't human beings. These were celestial beings. So how how could how could you die of something as human as cancer? So it kind of sets off this whole chain of events that gets them questioning everything. And instead, the remaining member uh, they changed all their names, and this guy was just Doe. This guy Doe ends up doubling down. He says, "No, now it's really happening. You know what? If she can go by cancer, then now is time that we leave our our human vessels behind and we go." we go to the heavens. So they end up going on all the radio stations. They put out a massive ad in USA Today, and it gets a lot of attention. Um, 
And eventually they get everybody out in Southern California and they, um, you know, and they wear these matching tracksuits and these special Nike sneakers. And, um, and this is at this point. So they, they really were getting rid of their human form. I mean, they were scrubbing their bodies and he had castrated himself and a few other of the men had castrated themselves really to change who they were as human beings and not be humans anymore, um, which gets into its own psychology that, you know, it turns out he was probably homosexual and just all this shame about it and everything. Um, but uh, as far as he was concerned, they were going to go to heaven. And uh, so they they poison this applesauce and they uh, they eat it all. And I believe it was 36 different members of the of this cult ended up dying uh, tragically, thinking they were you know going to go up to heaven with the aliens and get zapped up by a UFO and um, yeah, and then it becomes this huge uh, pop culture story. Like I said, you know, they have the, the SNL skit, and it's in all the news, and it becomes kind of a laughing stock. Um, and um, uh, and strangely, Nike comes out with these special edition uh, <laughs> these these Nike sneakers to honor the Heaven's Gate away team um, as they don themselves, uh, which are worth thousands of dollars now, but uh, probably something that I think in today's age they they wouldn't. They wouldn't uh, commemorate. I don't know. Maybe they would. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I do love the um, the piece, the illustration that you've done with this, with the Nikes like hanging, like they're hanging on a line. Uh, yeah, with angel uh, wings, they're going <laughs> yeah. to heaven, and the, the UFO is coming for them. Yeah. And and you also like, and I also appreciate like you brought up QAnon, right? Like you were like, there's also these other thing, you know we've got these sort of stories that we can look back on. Like a, you know, heaven's gate is what, 25 years old now, right? We can look back on some of these, but there are other things that are happening. Like you, like right now um, that we should be aware of or be thinking about, like you said, overpopulation um, and different things that, that are still going on in 2022. Yeah, I always wanted to relate all of these old stories to today, right? So, I mean, we can have a laugh about the people that, ha, 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 astrology, and they thought there was going to be a flood, and they're scrambling. And um, and all of these different, you know, we thought this uh, this this writer in, in London, she was having visions, and she was giving birth to Messiah. And it's all kind of laughable. And even the, the cults, which are pretty deranged, but they go all the way from the 1500s to today. It ends with today, where I have this list of, okay you know we've had a bit of a laugh about it but hopefully not at anyone's expense because there's also stuff that's going on today that's really dangerous and all of these fears from volcanoes to asteroids you know it wipes out everyone else but we are not immune to it um and i also don't but i i don't yeah i don't want it to be uh like i'm mocking any of these old things but i like i said i'm trying to keep it light but also um you know realizing that all of this stuff is is going on today almost all of it um and there's always somewhere out there there's the QAnon and there's um there are writers that um you know fear the government and why you know why would we fear the government so we have to you know they're going to bring a capitalist war upon the people and we're all going to get wiped out and nuclear apocalypse becomes a massive thing and everyone becomes afraid of that. A lot of it can become generational, right? So we're even seeing like this, this cycle of uh, people that if you were born in the Cold War, you know, you might 
make you a little have a little more grit and determination and you can be stronger the fact that you were living in this time of immense fear of outsiders and neighbors um, or it could make you incredibly paranoid of um, the government and uh, of bombs and um, of what the government tells you um, and we have historical reasons for these things so um, I never want I never want it to be preachy where I'm telling anyone what to think um, because so much of it is, I mean, we're living through it all the time. Um, and there are reasons for everyone to think all of these things, you know, and to be so easily what we seem as see as duped now historically. And then we get to, uh, we get to today. And so I spent so much of this book kind of saying, oh, isn't this funny? They thought the world was going to end here. They thought it was going to happen here. And then who would I be to then say, you know, but we get to global warming and let's like, let's take this seriously when, Hey, we've, we just went over that. We were afraid of all of these other things. So am I now saying, no, this one's the real one. This one's the real one. So what do I say then? Because it is a legitimate concern. We have all the science that says it's a legitimate concern, but I also don't want to be the one that's, you know, now shouting from the rooftops after I was just mocking these people for shouting from the rooftops too much, right? Um, so I do just want it to be a presentation of it um, without telling any, hopefully without telling anyone what to think um, and just kind of documenting these different end of the world scenarios. And, um, but yes, I do believe in global warming and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think that's that. where some of that satire comes in and right in that way of um, looking at like, how do we, frame this and think about these they're legit concerns um but like framing it in a way that um is representative of all the other legitimate concerns that have come before <laughs> i mean and you also bring like you bring up the doomsday clock and so there are things that you kind of talk about like here are the ways we at least in a more modern times have um thought to talk about right like we talk about like we all love zombies or we talk you know those kinds of things but we have also created spaces like we like we have a physical doomsday clock once like you talked about the cold war and you you know and here you talk about um nuclear holocaust like once these things happened this became a growing concern of how the world is what what humans are doing to make the world end, not just in pockets, but as a, you know, as a global civilization. Yeah, there was so much of it is a reaction. So many of these stories come from a, a reaction to these fears, right? Um, so in the wake of we get chemical warfare and World War One, and all of a sudden all these writers and existentialists are starting to question everything because it's just immense, senseless death. And we never understood death to be so pointless. And there's just so much death of it. Um, so a lot of it comes out of that. And then we get to World War II and it happens again. And now we've got nuclear Holocaust to worry about. And how could that happen? And, and, and can we do this to ourselves? Are we the ones that are going to end our own world? Is this all so senseless? And then, um, uh, hopefully to turn it around a, a bit with the, the lightness is, is uh, because once you know, there is a bit of, of doom and gloom with the um, once we develop nuclear warfare, um, but then responsibility comes into place. Right. So um, so I have a story about the doomsday clock, which is actually pretty interesting um, to people have different reactions to it in terms of how people feel if it's really valuable or if it's just a bunch of intellectual elites standing around saying, uh, you know, I think uh, I think we should stop doing this. Well, OK, what's your plan? You know, um, but it is really interesting what they do, because it is 
uh, it, was, it was started by the, the, the people that are responsible for Project Manhattan. And they're saying, um, you know, we, we're making this stuff and science is, is creating this stuff, but what do we do for responsibility? Um, and so this, this clock was, okay, in terms of how humans can potentially end their own world, um, you know, with this 60 minutes to uh, one, one hour to midnight, midnight being the end of the world. And then, um, and it changes back and forth, right? It gets closer and closer. And then in the 90s, we get some peace treaties amongst these superpowers with all of these nuclear warfare. And all of a sudden, it seems like, okay, we're, we're making some progress. And they move it back a little bit. Um, and now with this combination of, you know, what they deem and what they list. So what they do is every year, they get these people from different uh, areas, different fields. Uh, they come together, everything from, uh, you know, nuclear science to um, uh, to writing and um, uh, and social media and the Internet and technology. Um, and they say, OK, well, we have uh, so misinformation is now leading one of the things that that their fears about the end of the world, along with. This, the old standbys, you know, plague and um, uh, nuclear holocaust. And so now we're actually at the closest to midnight it's ever been. I think it's something like 17 seconds or something. I forget. I haven't looked at that one in a while. But, um, yeah, that one that one was pretty concerning. But also, I mean, that was the reason I wrote the book was that, you know, with this, there's all this talk of we are closer than ever. We have more concerns than ever. Oh, yeah, right. And, like, and it's interesting because some of these like you know some especially the ones in the past some of them are like isolated here's a small group of people who believe this but as we get closer to or this has to do with religion or mythology or the calendar the mind calendar whatever it might be but as we get to today uh, many of these are really global in nature right yeah yeah are there is there anything that like so you finished, you know, you you get all these, you put it together, like you said. You, I mean, there's many, many different scenarios for the how the world ends. Is there anything that you were like after you completed this? You were like, I wish I would have included this one, or you came across other um, sort of stories or narratives of how the world might end that you were like wanted yeah, to add. <laughs> always. I mean, I, I would assume it happens to everybody, but as soon as I get it in, I, I'm still thinking, I, literally the other day, I was just like, oh, you know what? I should have put, I should have included that. You know, I should have done something like that. And But a, a while back, I still have this list of these few things that I was going to add and either it didn't come together, or it didn't fit in the right place. Um, but there was one that really stuck with me is, is thinking about just in um, just in a vacuum, thinking about this scenario that happens on Easter Island as an example of how we destroy our own habitats, right? So an island is the perfect test case for how we deal with our world, right? Um, so when settlers arrive, um, so I, I didn't do, all, I had like some of the research, I'm, I'm not going to remember all the dates and everything, but there's this whole sweeping tale of like when settlers arrive, um, and they're not really near anything else. So they're saying, okay, well, let's just, let's start, uh, using up some resources and we've got plentiful trees. We've got this and that, and these are our resources. And then just using absolutely everything up. And it was a, it was a bustling civilization where sailors would stop for a while. And of course they have the Easter Island sculptures and everything there, um, which was going to be, uh, my illustration was going to use something with the, you know, this, 
beautiful Easter Island sculptures that they have everywhere there. Um, but it's one of the saddest tales of what we can do to our own spaces. Um, they end up using up all the resources and nobody can live there anymore. There's absolutely nothing left. Um, and they, they left it all. And, um, so I was going to try, that was the one that I was really bugging me that I couldn't quite figure out how to fit that in. And, um, if I, if I had something else, I would probably add that one and somehow relate it to this larger scale of what we're doing in the world. I mean, cause it really is a test case for, um, you know, what we're doing just similar to also was kind of similar to, um, I, I open with extinction. So I talk about mass extinctions, which go into, volcanoes and asteroids and the, the, the five mass extinctions in history. Um, but when we think about extinction, the dodo bird has kind of become the symbol of that because, you know, sailors go to Mauritius and they have these plentiful, big, meaty fowl that they can just, they don't have to chase down. They just walk up to them and grab them and cook them up. And if you're hungry, that's, you could feast on them and they're perfect. They have no predators. So they're just big and full and ready to eat. And, um, and so it became this reputable spot, go there, stop there while you're sailing around and eat them all up. And, uh, and then they, they just go, Oh, it's getting harder to find them. And then all of a sudden they're just gone because we didn't know, we didn't know about extinction. We didn't know that they could literally just be gone forever. Surely they must be around somewhere. Um, and that's how, that's kind of how we learned about, uh, or one of the ways we learned about extinction was around the same time that we discovered, oh, wait a second, we could actually get rid of things forever. <laughs> they might all die. Uh, when you, with the illustrations, did you um, think, especially when you're looking at some of the myth, right? Um, like I, I'm looking at the Mayan calendar one, for example, did you do a bit, did you try to replicate any of kind of what you had seen in your research when people, you know, or were you just kind of doing what you wanted to do? Or was there a little bit of like, how do I represent this era or this myth or those kinds of things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's the fun part for me is so the research, there's the writing and the editing, and that is kind of its fun own little puzzle. But the puzzle that I, I really enjoy is, is figuring out how matching this research with uh, an image that makes sense and pairs well with it and has equal value and weight to the text. Um, and of course, I'm researching images as well. Imagery, how do I represent this? Can I do something clever? Can I do something different with it? Um, so I'm sketching and I'm trying things over and over again, uh, particularly with the 2012 Mayan calendar. Um, I was just researching. I just wanted to come up with something that was like a Mayan uh, almost relief sculpture. So they were even uh, in printmaking. They were some of the first ones to use stone carving to create a print off of it. Um, so um even just having that that relief surface, I was looking at some old prints of theirs and old um, uh, old uh, sculptures, stone sculptures. Um, just kind of using that visual vocabulary to come up with something that I thought was this um, this imagery that pairs with war and death and peace and death and society. So I have these different illustrations that kind of pair together and look like hopefully look somewhat resembling to uh, a Mayan uh, sculpture. 
Yeah, I will just have to say, because it is, right, it's as much about the images as it is about the text, right? So, I mean, I I love the chemical warfare image you have with, like, the scientists standing above everyone, kind of with the... Um, what is it with the little the, eye drop uh, the yeah, droplet the eye drop yeah dropping these chemical <laughs> flumes that are billowing over these soldiers as they have gas masks and they're all dying and um yeah just massive death. yeah so using scale and having the yeah i have the scientists dropping that right and um, then um i'm trying to think of some uh, are there other images that like i did love that the ragnarok where thor is just like tiny <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah 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 As opposed so, to the mighty thor <laughs> yes yeah yeah well i mean these are yeah uh we i i wanted to keep it separate from like you know marvel comics or anything but there are a couple that are a little more illustrative in the classic like you know i get to do some bulking muscles like when i depict satan taking over the world and i have uh thor as like this you know this small but uh in scale but you know this silhouette superhero in there um so i i get to play with a few uh different more classical illustration uh style and then others um are just kind of Fun. One that really sticks with me is um, uh, so when I was looking up, can I do something different with overpopulation other than what we uh, what we think of with just like a mob of people kind of crammed together? And I found this study. Um, it was one of the last ones that I added to the book, maybe even the last one. Um, and it was. Um, and it's the one that kind of sticks with me as as this potential for the end of the world, actually. And when I think about, you know, how how it could go, that one kind of sticks with me because there was a study in the 1960s. Uh, the scientist from Maryland, John B. Calhoun, he um, they they start getting kind of afraid of overpopulation in the 1960s. So there's plenty of plenty of space then, it seems, right? But if you look at where they were looking at over the course of like 50, 60 years, the population had gone from one billion total people in the world to three billion. So that's that's pretty big. Of course, now we're nearing eight. So um, that seems quaint, but at the time they were getting really afraid and they're saying, okay, well, let's do some studies on this. Let's see. So classically they're using uh, rats in a cage, right? So I ended up depicting these rats kind of crammed in a cage. Um, and that's my illustration. But um, the story with the research is that he has this this cage and and he makes it you know nice and spacious. There's plenty of space, and they even have these little side nooks in the cage that they they get to kind of live in cozy spaces, and they all kind of get their own spaces in these little off cages and in, in this big cage. Um, and there's plenty of space, but of course rats are uh, reproducing, and they um, and it, and suddenly space becomes at a premium. And then uh, all of a sudden. And they're all living, previously they had been kind of taking care of each other and they were living in a civil manner. And they, um, But then once space is gone, um, they, uh, they become more combative, which is what you'd expect. Um, but then, strangely, they become less combative and some become reclusive. And they kind of withdraw from what we would deem society or society in a cage. They no longer... Uh, preen themselves. They don't take care of themselves. The mothers don't make a nest for their young. So there's no longer this society of like raising their children rights. And um, and the, so once they're not taught how to live in a functioning society, then they don't 
then the next generation, they don't have anything to build on, right? And it becomes, uh, you know, the, the biggest and strongest of the rats get to use those little nooks and they fight off everyone else. And, and they are the ones, the only ones that get that. And they're, and then they start and they're, they're, they're fighting for the, the food. And then, but the fighting eventually stops and they just kind of starve. And, they, and because they're all withdrawn from society, and you think, no, surely it must just become more and more combative. But no, it gets to this point that the fabric of society has broken down of this mouse city, they call it. Um, and so the fabric is gone. So they're no longer each generation is, is passing on the appropriate traits. And then, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the fabrics of our human society breaking down and what what are we teaching each other? And what would it even seem like compared to the 1960s to now? So. He comes out with this study and the reaction is this doomsday, right? It's, it's, oh my God, our fabric's breaking apart. There's too many people. Overpopulation is going to destroy the world. And he's saying, and he spent the rest of his career saying, well, the purpose of this study isn't that the world is going to end to overpopulation. It is that this is the start of a study to figure out how we can deal with uh, having a system in place to deal with the stresses of a growing population because there is a growing population. There's always, there's going to be. Um, so uh, he was less doom and gloom about it. He was saying, let's deal with the stresses. Let's have an infrastructure in place to make sure that we don't have these mice kind of withdrawing from their society and everything. But it's also, I mean, now I just, every time I see something chaotic or all these stories of people arguing on planes and just acting like wild animals and like, who raised you? What are you doing? And every time I see this, I just keep thinking, John B. Calhoun, what would he be thinking of all this? You know, I, I mean, the fabric of society falling apart. Um, so, I mean, that's the one that, I, that's one that was really sticking with me. I just keep thinking of these rats in a cage. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, and what is it? Is it Alice in Chains? The despite all the rage, we are still just a rat, right? The entire time I was carving and printing that illustration, I was saying, I'm just, I'm singing it to myself the whole time. Yes, that was the theme to that illustration. Uh, And I have to say that you have an illustration, I think, towards the beginning that would make a great t shirt with, um, you know, the Sith and the this is just the beginning with death kind of standing I'm guessing it's death right there in his um, right and I'm like this would really make a great t-shirt <laughs> oh that's all right. I'll have to think about that one um, yeah that, uh, so yeah I opened the book um, I kind of jump around just the, just kind of a few points that I think are kind of what to think about going ahead and um, and that I don't want it to you know the, there's a reason people have thought this in the past and there's a reason we can think about it and there's a benefit to thinking about this, right? Um, you know, when we think about, you know, I, I open with a quote um, about, uh, you know, the uh, what is it? The optimist uh, um, invents the plane; the pessimist invents the parachute, right? So this book would be the the parachute. Let's educate ourselves on ways to let's just not think, let's not go along society thinking that we're going to be around forever. Let's go ahead and make some parachutes, you know. Um, so um, so I open with that, and you know, all these. Uh, people picket signs and arguing and what are we arguing about? What are we really mad about? You know, what are we really reflecting? And then, uh, yeah, so I, I also have the opening of the book being uh, the Grim Reaper with a Sith that says this is the beginning. We think of the Grim Reaper as the great ending, um, but uh, but this is the start of the book. And it's also maybe, and I also say I finish 
the introduction with something about um, it being, uh, you know, an ending, it can actually be, you know, a new beginning. So anytime you see throughout the book, the world ends or the world comes close to an end, that's actually a new beginning. Um, so just because I really didn't want it to be uh, really depressing. I don't want it to be a depressing book. So that's the only, that's the reason I had to finish it with, hey, this is a new beginning here. Um, yeah. It's not depressing. It's fun. <laughs> so um, I'll ask you, because we could probably talk about the apocalypse forever, but so I'll ask you kind of my final question. Um, this, which is sort of self-promotion, right, for yourself. Um, the, can you talk a little, the book's coming out at the end of September, right? Um, so is there anything, either anything new you're working on, <laughs> you know, or anything with this book that you kind of want to put out there and promote and shout out? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, not much for promotion, but okay. All right. Let's go over this. Yeah. I am thinking about my, you know, my next project. I mean, this is really the exciting time when I get to kind of see it come together and it comes out and there will be, um, I'm going to do a, a little book tour, I think in, in March in the U S um, I'm from Rhode Island. So it would be like Boston, Providence, New York, that kind of area. Um, and then right now it's, it's coming out and I'm living in Dubai. Um, so we have Dubai Design Week uh, coming up. So I'm going to actually exhibit some of the prints. You might see some of these behind me uh, in the video format anyway. Um, so I have uh, some, some of the actual uh, line of cut prints, the printmaking illustrations made by hand um, that are featured in the book. So those actual hand prints um, will be uh, exhibited along with some paintings inspired by the book. And then I'll do some readings uh, from it. And I'll have a bunch of The End is at Hand posters uh, that I'm screen printing and I'll hand those out and people can, uh, you know, have a poster that says The End is at Hand and put it on a picket sign or something. Um, and I'm sure that I'm sure there's other things that I'm doing for this too. I'm thinking about Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me again. This is Daryl Perkins who wrote The End is at Hand and Illustrated History of the Apocalypse. Thanks for talking with me for New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you, Rebecca. My pleasure.